Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Before we start today, I wonder, is there a challenge you're facing at work? Perhaps you're not sure what to do about it, or if there is anyone out there who can help you. Why not book in a call using the Calendly link in the show notes and we can have a chat. I'm always happy to help. And it's true what they say. Two heads really are better than one when you're diving deep and climbing high. Today, we're going to be diving deep into a topic and a word that can be a conversation stopper for many businesses. Often asked to work with organisations and leaders on this subject, my guest is also asked not to mention the word, to find another way to describe it, sugarcoat it if you like. Of course, given that this podcast is all about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, we're going to say it as it is. And the topic of conversation today is trauma, and more specifically, how bad leaders can install trauma into their teams. My guest is founder and managing partner of his own leadership development consultancy, the Elevate Partnership. He's also a European mentoring and coaching council accredited coach. He's been a management consultant, coach, educator, facilitator, and trainer for over 20 years, working across the globe with private, public, and voluntary organizations. His view of leadership and the world of work is both insightful and thought-provoking. I cannot wait to start this conversation. Please welcome Paul Crick. Hi, Paul. Thank you. Hello. Thanks, Mel. That's a lovely introduction. That's very kind of you. How are you doing? I am doing really well. Thank you. Good. Good. So we're here today to talk about a subject that can be uncomfortable for many. And we're going to unpick some of your beliefs and what you think about. But I think let's get started with a little bit of your story and how you've ended up working in the realm that you do and holding the beliefs that you have. Wow, how long have you got? Um, Let's do the shortened version. So to make people smile, I usually say I'm a recovering management consultant. So I spent most of my career, I would say good 20 years of it, working for PricewaterhouseCoopers, Capgemini, and um, for the most part, IBM. And my original training was in marketing, but in 2007, for various reasons, I sort of decided that I needed to gravitate more towards helping people and started to go down a road of learning various modalities of practical psychology, coaching, ended up 
taking a detour into psychotherapy, which was fascinating, uh, back into coaching. And then in 2019, took what was a sort of uh, weekends and uh, an evenings gig full time. And, and now have the Elevate Partnership doing this work, looking at working from the inside out. Forbes published an article that said in 2019, we spent 366 billion on leadership development one way or another, whether that was internal uh, high potential programs, sending people out to business schools and internal courses. And you kind of go, okay, if we spent that amount of money, why are we where we are? Given all the challenges we have, we've got, you know, in the UK, we've got Brexit, but wider afield, we've got climate change, we've got a war and, and, and all sorts of things going on around the world. And you kind of go, mm, there's a disconnect somewhere. So I wanted to find a way to contribute that to making that better. And as I dug into the subject of leading and leadership practice, I found that really leadership was one of those, what I call weasel words. And a weasel word is a word that everybody uses, but everybody's forgotten what it originally was meant to be about. Strategy is another one. And I felt that really we, we, we get confused. It's too easy. We say leadership this, leadership that. You know, we, we kind of like, it's a leadership contest. And you go, well, what's, what are you saying and why are you saying it? So I break it down into being a leader um, with the emphasis on being and what I call the practice of leadership practice, uh, which is a bit of a mouthful, but actually that does nail what it is. So I think my experiences, are, I mean, consulting is a high pressure environment. It can be toxic in places, either at a team level or even um, department level. And I had some experience of that, but generally it's a high pressure, high performing, high, high demanding environment, which places quite a strain on our nervous system. And that's really where I, I came at it. Okay. so. I'm guessing that working with the nervous system or where you came from is where you then get that whole idea about working from the inside out. Well, it was during psychotherapy studies. Um, so I, I play music. Yeah, I've, I've, I've played keyboards and since I was three and I've been waiting for the call for Led Zeppelin since I was 15. Um, but strangely <laughs> enough, I haven't had that and probably never will now. Um, but I always froze on stage. Yeah, I would go to play, then it'd be like playing with boxing gloves. I might as well have had those on, and I couldn't figure out why. So I took the opportunity during the course, we had to do a quest, which was, you know, what's the one thing you need to learn and overcome? Go and research it, you know, and then come up with a model that shows how you've learned to overcome it. So the technical term is music performance anxiety. And as I dug into that, I thought, right, it's a fear. I know, I need to go and conquer fear. So I did. Um, so I did a Tony Robbins thing, which was go and walk across some fire, which the first time you do it, you're scared witless. But the second, third, fourth, and fifth time you do it, you kind of go, well, what's the big deal? It's just fire, you know, once you've learned how to do it, it's, it's actually very easy. And then I got very smug laughing at people going, well, I'm running a marathon. I'm going, I'm walking 30 feet and I'm still raising money. So I thought, all right, it's not a fire, fire, I've overcome that fear. And I thought, well, what's my other fear? Well, my other big one is fear of heights. I know I'll jump out of a plane for charity. So I did. Uh, and I got to the ground. Uh, by the way, if you've not done it, if you've not done a tandem jump, you have to go do it. It is a magical experience. Terrifying as you might think it is. And the terrifying bit is only the first 10 seconds. After that, it's amazing. It is just a, an incredible experience. And I thought, 
Okay, so I've walked across fire, I've jumped out of a plane, albeit attached to someone else that doesn't want to die. I thought, I know, I'll go and learn how to do a stunt jump. So there's a particular stunt jump called, uh, what's it called? Oh, it's something like a death drop or something like that. And, and essentially, you jump off the equivalent of a three-story building onto a mat. But the way you do it is you jump and kick your legs up and in, and land in a horizontal crucifix like that. Okay. Uh, which takes a bit of doing. But I did that. I, I've got film of me doing it. And I, I went, okay, it's not fear. Yes, I have fear, but I can overcome it. I can model it. I can find out what other people do. If I try that suit on, yes, I experience fear in the moment, but I can regulate in such a way to still do that experience. And it's interesting because if you read Dr. Pippa Granger's book, Fear Less, she talks about two types of fear. The first is fear in the moment. So that's if you're out in the Kruger National Park and a lion taps you on the shoulder, that's okay to have the fear in the moment that you're going to be in an attack. That's perfectly natural. Every other fear falls into the category of I'm not good enough in some way, shape or form. And that's the other fear. And that's what she talks about in terms of learning to fear less. So I did some more digging and as part of the psychotherapy, learned all about trauma, which is the T word. Ooh too late I've said it Mel I'm sorry um, <laughs> we can say it as many times as we like on we? this podcast all right, that's all right then. yeah and what's interesting what I learned is trauma is not the event trauma is what happens to you on the inside as a result of the event which is how it impacts your nervous system and gets embedded in the body so basically the autonomic nervous system is a tripartite system there's the sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight flight thing. That's when we get stressed, anxious. If we're cornered, you know, we either want to run away or we want to punch whatever's in front of us. There's then the parasympathetic nervous system and there's two parts to that. Parasympathetic nervous system is a long set of words that is all about your rest and digest. The front part of it is the rest, relax. The back part of it is the freeze, fawn response to fear. So when a mouse is caught by a cat, it goes limp in the mouth because it knows it's going to die. And it's, it's that terrified. And it's interesting because if you look into shark attack statistics, as sadly I did many years ago, many divers survived because they went limp in the mouth of the animal. And the shark was chewing away going, because it's trying to investigate with its teeth, is this worth eating or not? And if you don't move, the shark goes, rubbish and spits it out and, and some people have been lucky to survive that for that very reason because they 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 had that response and it's interesting i found footage on youtube of impala captured by jaguar and the jaguar has been chased off by a hyena and has left so the the impala lies in a catatonic state so no movement of the eyes no breathing complete freeze response but then it gradually recovers. And as it recovers, it shakes. And what it's doing is it's draining its internal hormones in a way. And you see horses do this. You know, you'll see a horse spook, sees a plastic bag or hears a plastic bag in a hedge and goes, oh, what was that? And then it sort of plants its hooves and goes absolutely still 
literally freezes. And then when it goes, oh, I think it's okay now, you'll see them do all this. Dogs will do it as well. Animals have this ability to shake that off, literally. We don't. We don't shake it off, and therefore that internal response has become internalized in the body. And that becomes really important because we have a window of tolerance for stress. And our window of tolerance is completely dependent on our conditioning and our life experience. So some of us have a very good window of intolerance and some of us don't because we've had a hard time and you know we're living in a more fearful state for one reason or another. And what that means is that what is stressful for one person is not stressful for another. What is stressful for one person as an event has a different impact on our nervous system. So you may ride a difficult meeting uh, where tempers are raised and you know it's it's fairly unpleasant. Uh, people are screaming, and I've seen this in some organisations. You know, classic sales cadence, end of the month. Oh, we're sixty million short. You know, you need to go and get. And it's all kind of those conversations, which are thoroughly unpleasant to witness, um, because all the pressure's on you. You know, it's like you're not good enough. We're we're managing by fear. Uh, if you don't do that, you don't get your bonus, or you get fired, or you get put on a performance improvement plan. All of that creates that fight flight response which releases cortisol into the body, you know, a whole host of activities happen at once. If you want to know what happens, excellent book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Um, it explains exactly what happens, both at an endocrine level, also at a neurological level. So neurophysiologically, neurochemically, biochemistry, all that kind of stuff. It really is a good understanding. So it's that led me to a place where I go, oh, I, I get it. Even to the point of conversation, certain words being a trigger for our autonomic nervous system to take us into fight flight. We could say one one word. It might be, I need you to present next week. <coughs> yeah. Particularly if we've had bad experiences of presenting beforehand. And that causes that fight flight response. When we breathe, there's a there's a rhythm of breathing called the functional quiescent rhythm, which is breathing roughly every five or six seconds. And as we breathe in, we raise, we activate our sympathetic nervous system. And as we breathe out, we activate our parasympathetic nervous system. So it's part of our natural rhythm to do that. As this is all happening, we have this thing from when we first walked the earth of watching out for, are we safe? Is it safe for me to talk to you? Am I safe in this environment? In ancient times, it was, are you going to kill me? Are you going to eat me? Are you going to do something to me that's going to hurt? You know, I'm always paying attention to that. But we still do that now. If anyone doubts me, I want you to think about the next time you're in a group situation and you're asked to do a piece of group work. And you know that thing of, right, let's break into groups, pick a partner. Who do you pick? Why do you pick them? How do you pick them? And once you start paying attention to that level of behavior, you kind of go, oh yeah, I see what's going on. You always get the, the person that's kind of left at the end that goes, oh, nobody picked me. That's triggered all the childhood memories of when I was never picked for a football team or the hockey team or the netball team. I was always last. All of that kind of lingers. And we don't appreciate that that carries through because we have the same nervous system that we had all those years ago when all that conditioning took place. So this becomes really interesting 
in terms of how people behave, what people say. You know, if you consider the unit of culture is language, you know, what we say to each other and how we say it, you know, we're, we're, we're basically a collective of biochemical chain reactions. Interesting. So in all of that research that you've done, and you did as part of your psychotherapy training, how did that help you nail your fear of playing in public? It was hilarious because as part of the research, they said, go and find some exemplars to talk to, you know, go go model it. Because you were basically doing a modeling exercise that said, well, find out how they do it and then copy what they do, both externally and internally. So I spoke to, at the time, one of our top soprano opera singers. She had a number one album and she talked about her approaches and what happens to her. And she said, it's really interesting. She says, as the performance gets nearer, I can't use my mobile phone. Yeah, I try to tap things or I try to scroll. My hands won't function. So I have to learn how to breathe. The other two guys, one is a top session bass player, plays with huge number of live acts right now. And his first live experience was he was playing on stage uh, with Lisa Stansfield, if you remember her, yeah. at the Nottingham Arena. Uh, band went on stage and they struck up the first number and he started playing his bass and nothing came out of his bass. And of course he was yelling at the roadies going, what's going on? Uh, <laughs> and he'd forgotten to push the standby button. And of course, for the rest of the tour, the roadies just wound him up about it. Not just verbally, but they deliberately sort of part way through a set hit the standby button <laughs> on his amp, which I thought was really mean. But roadies are an interesting bunch. And uh, so he had that experience and now he travel checks his kit before he steps anywhere near a stage. So learning from him was interesting. And then uh, the other guy, he's an incredibly brilliant professional uh, musician. He's a vocalist. Uh, he plays in a number of different bands and is making a great living as a solo artist. And he was telling me his routine of you know how he gets dressed and how he lays his clothes out and as he's approaching the stage, what he does physically and how he moves his body to get into his body um, to get on stage. But none of them really knew. And then I met a lady who taught me a routine from Qigong, which is all about how you prepare your body to perform. It's all about breathing, centering, grounding, how to get into your belly. And basically I use that. Does that mean I don't get afraid? No, I do. There are moments when I have played in public and I've gone, ooh. It was a bit like when I did the parachute jump. The first 10 seconds or what seemed like 10 seconds were terrifying as you jumped out of the plane and you went weightless. It's like, you know, when you go down a, a, over a hump in a car and they get that feeling in your stomach. Well, imagine that magnified about 100 times for about 10 seconds. And then it all goes quiet. That's the ridiculous thing because you're sort of hurtling to the ground at 120 miles an hour. Anyway, guy pulls the parachute parachute opens it's all a bit painful but we slow down from 120 to 70 miles an hour and then he taps me on the shoulder and I can hear him and he says if you want to rest your feet on my feet you can and I thought all right yeah I'll do that and I got I sort of settled and I'm admiring the view he taps me on the shoulder and he goes welcome to my office <laughs> but on the way down there was a moment where I suddenly realized what I was doing and I went oh my god I'm 3,000 feet off the ground <laughs> I'm falling through the air at a speed that's far too fast. I'm going to die. And then that all went away again because it's sensory overwhelm uh, that does it. So if you look at extreme sports research and the chemistry for getting into flow, essentially I was in a flow state. 
and that when you're in flow, you can't be afraid, which is interesting. Fantastic. So from everything that you've said there, I'm taking that that breathing is important. It is. And finding whatever it is to relax you and everybody has to find whatever it is that works for them. Understand it's about harnessing fear, not getting rid of it. So reframing it as excitement or wonder or whatever that is for you is the first thing. When you're breathing, don't be high on your chest. If you breathe high on your chest, you're actually activating your sympathetic nervous system, which is the last thing you want. You want to activate your, your other half, your rest and digest, which means you've got to breathe into your belly. It's okay. Nobody's looking. Just do it. It, it helps. Soften the gaze. That all helps. You, know, you, you will find your routine for doing that. Um, I worked with a concert pianist and we worked on moving from the side of the stage, literally time sliced in second by second how she would walk how she would settle the piano uh, what would she would do when she got to the piano how she handled her music how she breathed where she looked how she looked how she rearranged the clothes before she played even the first note what she said to herself as she began uh, and then just literally no mind what we call in martial arts mushin okay so again you've talked to people that would be perceived as highly successful oh man yeah very talented and i think sometimes we can have a perception that they don't feel like the rest of us mere mortals but actually it's not that is it it's how they handle that how they choose to deal with it that is different from some of us they've learned a pattern a strategy for regulating how their nervous system responds and you can do this you you can practice there's lots of different ways to regulate. So in in our body, we have a nerve called the vagus nerve and the vagus nerves runs from the brainstem all the way, touches all the major organs. And that's why it's the information superhighway. So it links to your heart, links to your adrenal gland. So it's all the fear response stuff that, you know, when it kicks in, it just goes bang. But you can slow that down. You can slow that response down. One way is to practice um, having a cold shower because the first time you step into coach, how, how long do you last? Well, if you're like me, about two seconds. But as you build that up, you suddenly find that you get to a point where 30 seconds is actually quite pleasant. You come out of it and you go, oh yeah, I feel really awake now. And that's strengthening your vagus nerve. But anything that connects your mind to your body, so meditation's good. Any physical exercise that, say running's great, swimming's great, yoga's great, Pilates is great, it's martial arts is fantastic. Anything that allows you to do that connecting in a way that you're doing your activity mindfully, you're training your vagus nerve all the time and you're developing vagal tone, which is essentially like building a muscle, except instead of it being a, an instinctive response, it's less reactive. So in martial arts, so I do Aikido, and one of the things that we often do is you'll you'll get attacked with a sword. So the sword's, it's big, it's wooden, and you'll know about it if it, if it hits you. And you learn to move at the very last minute. all the time you're learning and the reason you're doing that is because you want to be present so we talk about presence a lot in business and I don't think people really understand what that means can you stay centered can you breathe you know can you feel your feet on the floor can you feel your breath moving in and out of your belly can you soften your gaze and be aware of what's around you for as long as possible before you make the decision to do anything that's really what we're doing on martial arts is, is how long can I wait? Because it gives me the maximum number of choices in how I respond. 
And then when I respond, I respond decisively. The aim is not to win the fight, the end is to stop the fight. So all the time, the quality of my vagal tone is being tested. You know, am I going to move? Am I going to move? Ooh, that, that shot was a bit close. How do I feel? That was the event. How's that embodied itself? And I've been doing it for about four and a half years now. And I noticed that, that my quality of response, I can have four people running at me and I'm like, oh, it's okay. I'll just move you out of the way. Yeah, I sound like I'm an expert. I'm not, I'm a beginner. But you get better at that. Whereas when you first get a, a multi-man attack, it's kind of like, oh my God, what do I do? You know, it, it just becomes a real mess. And that's all to do with vagal tone and, and that ability to move calmly and with precision and power and with good posture and remain centered is a real skill on the mat that applies off the mat. But it's all to do with how we're regulating and training our autonomic nervous system to respond. So I'm intrigued. How do you take all of this learning and insight that you have into organizations to help them improve their leadership and ensure that their leaders aren't installing trauma in, in their teams. So we don't use the T word. Okay. We use the R word instead. I think I know what that R word is, but <laughs> you tell me what the R word is. The R word <laughs> is resilience. Okay. So it, much like people think the opposite of addiction is sobriety, it's not. The opposite of addiction is connection. The opposite of trauma is resilience because in the moment of emotional pain, you have enough support to survive that emotional pain. That's what resilience is. It's got nothing to do with gravity. So, you know, I, I jump up and down and shout at people when they go, oh, well, it's all about bouncing back. No, it's not. It's all about providing emotional support in situations that are difficult. So what are the difficult situations? Difficult situations are, I don't know. And I don't know how to tell someone I don't know, although the last two years, I know that is beginning to change. Emotionally painful situations are, I'm extremely anxious because of what's going on in my working or my personal life, but I don't want to tell anyone that I'm vulnerable or feeling that. Yeah, so I'm experiencing some emotional pain. Providing that compassion and support helps the individual develop resilience. So it's just like being attacked on a mat with a sword. You develop the resilience to face into what's coming at you rather than running away going oh, I'll tell you what let's go for a beer and get stoned on beer for for an evening or let's numb up or let's do this or let's do that instead of facing into what needs to be faced into so it's when we have the emotional support in emotionally painful moments that's when we're getting resilience and the trauma response is when that support isn't there so when we think of an overwhelming event that support wasn't there Okay. Fantastic. So if somebody is listening to this mm -hmm. saying, I understand all of that, Yep. but how, how do I provide that support? What would your recommendation be as a good place to start? Start with yourself. Do you provide that support for yourself? Do you understand your behavior in terms of energy patterns and looking through what's called the interpersonal neurobiology lens, which is really what we've been talking about. Do you understand that mind is the flow of energy and information within you and between us? So get yourself educated is the first thing and then build it into your daily practice and rituals. 
and I'm not being prescriptive about what that should be, but you know, in terms of building vagal tone, learn about polyvagal theory and apply it to yourself first. Because until you have a felt sense of what that support feels like when you're in emotional pain, and we all experience it to a degree, then you're not gonna be able to have sufficient empathy and compassion to support someone else in a situation. You're not gonna have the awareness to think that my behavior might actually cause an overwhelmed response that then lodges in the other person's neurological system. And therefore, they are not in a position of resilience. They're in the opposite of that, which is trauma. Okay. And you go, oh, but I thought traumas was wars and pestilence, and, and it is. Those are overwhelming for most people. But you can have microtrauma as well. And if you get enough of that, it becomes like the straw that breaks the camel's back. And it's the thing that can lead to mental health issues. So what you'll find with trauma is that's what underlies depression. It underlies anxiety. You know, those things, there's high comorbidity often. There'll be something, and it, it could be something historic that is just there. So you can get high functioning anxiety. So people that look on the surface like they're, they're doing brilliant things, but actually, you know, when people aren't looking, then they've got quite a high anxious response in their behavior somehow. So if you're saying to people, go get educated, you've, you've already mentioned a couple of books, which I will put in the show notes. Yep. If you had to say to people, this is a sort of, and none of this work is easy, I know that, but something that would get people started on that journey that is quite readable. Is there, is there a book that you would recommend, a TED talk that you would recommend people go listen to? So there's two books that in all the research I've done, I constantly go back to. The first is probably the best book written on the subject, which is called The Heart of Trauma, which is written by Dr. Bonnie Badenoch, which is B-A-D-E-N-O-C-H. Fantastic book, and it's fantastic because it threads together all that we know from Dr. Dan Siegel's work on interpersonal neurobiology, all that we know from Dr. Ian McGilchrist's work on the split brain, and all that we know from Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and um, Stephen Porges' work on polyvagal theory and trauma. And it basically is a synthesis of that that explains what happens biologically and how to support it and gives you some reflection exercises. Now, the focus is very much therapeutic, so it sounds dry. And it sounds like, well, why do I need to go and read a book on therapy? That's just for people who are doing that. I can't recommend more highly getting educated in that. So that would be one. The other one is The Body Keeps the Score, which is by Dr. Vessel van der Kolk. And his book explains how the body responds when it is put under sufficient stress to cause a traumatic response. And why sometimes trying to talk to people doesn't work. So, you know, the talk therapies or, or, or counseling, because actually they have to do some body work first. And that's why working in gardens, going out walking in forests, moving the body is first step because that frees up the trapped energy to then be able to say, right now I'm in a position where I can talk. I had a client when I was practicing as a therapist who had experienced the miscarriage. It was dreadfully, dreadfully sad and obviously really traumatic. And she sat in the chair in the room where I was working and she was rocking backwards and forwards and couldn't keep still. And in her body, her nervous system had just gone off track. So what we did was we sat her comfortably with a cushion in her chest 
and then there was a real heavy like an old welsh blanket you know those welsh wool blankets mm. that wear ton. Yeah. so yeah. we folded that up so it was quite even more weight and i said just put that on your shoulders and let it hang and of course all that weight stopped the body mm. and after about two or three minutes she looked at me and she said what have you done i said i didn't do anything i said all we did was we helped the body find a point where it could regulate itself again mm. and then we were able to do the work the rest of the work which is about processing her feelings about the event that had happened yeah. and and i want people to think about that i just want people to understand that a conversation is a neurobiological chain reaction so think about meetings you know that's a series of neurobiological chain reactions and until we see the world through this lens people who certainly in toxic cultures are going to continue doing what they're doing not knowing the impact of that on our neurophysiology on our neurochemistry and i i want to change that and i think there's a way of changing that without going at least i hope that people think that i've not gone over the top yes i've done a lot of research into this but that was for my own benefit you know there was me searching research Mm. So, so that I could find out more about how I worked and why I behaved in a particular way, especially as I'd gone to the trouble of jumping out of a building out of a plane and walked across fire a few times. And that wasn't the issue. <laughs> so this, so it's kind of a light bulb moment. And when you have light bulb moments like that, you want to share that with people and go, folks, you're looking in the wrong place. So even psychologists, I'm not dissing psychologists, but even psychologists don't talk about that. They assume, oh, the mind's in scold. Well... Yes and no. The mind is one brain. Well, there isn't such a thing as one brain in the world. We co-evolve and we co-create. And until we recognize that, then how the hell are you going to manage teams if you don't recognize that we're co-creating our experience and that this neurobiological chain reaction is happening even over distance over... You know, if I had another lifetime, I'd do a PhD on it and go, this is so fantastic, so interesting as to how and what beautiful creatures and how wonderful our design is i believe you have to look at it through this lens to really understand the impact that you have on other people because until we do then nothing's going to change and we have enough of a mental health epidemic at the moment we don't need to add to it fantastic i love it and it is really deep as i said at the beginning it was going to be really thought-provoking <laughs> um so i really really hope that that the conversation has given people food thought and they will go away and at least have a quick dip in some of these books that you've recommended just take a cold shower for a, for a couple of weeks and, and notice the difference i'm an advocate of cold showers have them every morning <laughs> so i'm gonna switch slightly and take you into my world you uh -oh. know this is coming so yes. i mean you've talked about it quite a bit but i'm just wondering if there's anything else that you'd like to share with us about a time when you've had to dive deep into who you are and what impact that has had <laughs> oh lord um so i preface this with a view that our narrative changed through life as we process our past events and past decisions and some of my past decisions weren't the best of decisions let's put it like that and so at the end of nine years and nine months and with the loving support of my wife, I managed to pay off a debt somewhere in the region of £200,000 that I had caused simply because I was filling a void. There was that fear of not being enough. Of course, work for a management consultancy, you know, turn left on every plane, stay in nice hotels, you know, 
and that still wasn't enough. It was nuts. Uh, and consequently, so that was, you know, nine months, nine years and nine months is a lifetime. I remember the final payment being made and the guy at Grant Thornton who was administering the IVA at the time, the agreement to pay the debt. I said, that's the last payment. He said, yeah, you're insane. What you've done is insane. You should have just gone bankrupt. And I thought, yeah, I could have done that. But somehow, for some reason, it just seemed the right thing to do that. And of course, karmically, if you believe in that sort of thing, it just, yeah, I'd made this mistake. I'd righted the mistake. So we're even now with the universe. So I can now move on. Uh, and I guess the one story that comes to mind, so there's a Barclays branch on the Strand in London. And this particular day, it was this fearful state of, I'm not sure how much money I've got. Yeah, I think I'm down to my last 15 quid. I'm not even sure I've got that to be able to go and buy lunch. And London wasn't cheap then. It's even, <laughs> even less cheap now. And sort of, I got the card out, hands over the eyes, put it in there, pressed it. And it said, do you want an on-screen balance? And I went, oh, do you have to humiliate me? And it came back. It said, your balance is 15,000 pounds. I went, what? No. And I got to such a state where I was managing with my wife's help that I could manage the budget and strangle it to within within 25p of what I was spending where. And I, oh, something wrong about this. So I, I got a phone. I phoned the office. And I said, put me through to HR, please. It was payday. So I knew I was going to get paid. And I said, I think, I think there's been a mistake. I've got this balance in my bank account and it's wrong and I need to give you the money back because it's not mine. They said, oh, no, no, that's your bonus. Your bonus has been paid with your salary. Well, I just burst into tears. It was kind of like, you're kidding. Because it meant I could go, right, and pay that card off. And pay, you know, of all the mess that was there, which we, and it was fairly early on in that process. And, ju and just the relief. So I, I think if you said digging deep, yeah, I think that whole experience is, you know, there's, there's a whole series of stories that would make EastEnders look tame to go with that. But that's the one I'm willing to share right now. So yeah, that's when I had the experience of digging deep and coming through that. So I know, yeah, if anyone talks to me about resilience and they tell me this story, it's like, hmm, okay, let's see. <laughs> and of course, everybody's story is their own story and, yeah. and, and is valid. So yeah, and you can only coach to the depth that, that you've been to. So I look back now and I go, that was a gift. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That, that means a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. So we've dived deep. When have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree? No, <laughs> um, oh, I felt like a fish that climbed a tree. I always feel like a fish that climbs a tree. I'm just one of these people that sort of never fitted in. I couldn't do that or didn't find it easy. So I think oh, learning Aikido, because that was for me. That wasn't to try and, yeah, all right, there's part of it that means I can walk around and go, hey, look at me, I've got a black belt. But that isn't the point because the point is who you become in order to wear that. And, you know, as you go through the black belt grades, and I'm not a black belt yet, but I'm preparing now. And I think about four years ago when I first entered some, I'd done bits of martial arts in the past, but nothing like this, but I really threw myself into it. And, and you might say, well, why is that a problem? It's just like, you know, get on a mat. But I wanted to do it for real because the issue of resilience often boils down to self-trust your ability to trust yourself. And I've never really been good at that, again, for a whole series of stories that we don't need to go into. And 
therefore it's a place where I can develop self-trust and if you've not been good at trusting yourself for certain things yeah I ended up with personal debt of nearly 200 grand so yeah you don't really trust yourself you're using something externally to to validate yourself so I would say that journey I was training with a guy who just completed his fifth Dan black belt he's awesome to watch Aikido is one of those things that's poetry in motion and he, he definitely is and we were training and as you approach black belt your training gets a bit harder because it's kind of like well you're nearly a black belt now so you need to learn to fall like a black belt which means you fall harder and faster and we were getting better and I was doing it slightly better each time he threw me and there was one time where he said just give yourself to me you really have to trust yourself to be able to do that because you do you literally relax everything goes you shut everything out of your mind you don't even think whatever happens happens you just go with it and actually when you go with it and it works it's like a fairground ride it's it's fantastic it's like a parachute jump but all the time there's that overthinking block of am i going to be all right is it going to hurt i'm going to oh and all the time you're doing that you're not allowing the body to do what it naturally does and there you have it you know your interpersonal neurobiology is your internal neurobiology is working against you so how can you do that how can you you effectively get yeah. into a flow state? Does that make sense? It does. So keto for you is your fish climbing tree moment and being in flow. Yes. Love it. Thank you. You're welcome. I've so enjoyed talking to you. If, if our listeners want to find out more, get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Reach out on LinkedIn. Just ping me, connect. Connect and drop me a note. Fantastic. Well, I will make sure that goes in the show notes as with the website address for the Elevate Punishment as well. Thank you. So just leaves me to say thank you so much. Thank you for sharing some parts of your life. Obviously, it's been fascinating. The research that you've done, the experiences that you've had, I really, really appreciate it. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave people with today? Oh, Lord, I forgot about this. Um, what final words of wisdom? So I said this to a friend of mine the other day. I really believe our purpose in life is to learn to love and be loved and to show people the way home. And the only reason we come back is because we haven't learned that lesson yet. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple Podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. <laughs>